Hey, good morning, Collective. Pastor Ryan here. Uh, wonderful to be streamed by you today uh, as we are gathering once again to study the scriptures in the midst of this crazy season. I want to welcome also those of you that aren't a part of Collective and you're uh, here because someone invited you or maybe you've been wanting to attend for some time and, and check out one of our Sunday gatherings and you know the Netflix queue is dried up and so here you are. Um, we're really excited to have you uh, kind of digitally joining us today as we spend some time in the scriptures together. One of the things that we regularly say as a community and is worth saying so regularly in the midst of this moment is that the church is not a place where or an event when, but a people who, as we think about it, like a family is the way that the Bible talks about the church. It's like a family that uh, my house that I'm in right now is not my family. Uh, and game night that we have, you know, on a weekly basis or dinner on a weeknight, that's not family. Family are the people who come and live in this place and who do those things together. And so the church is not a place where, although we do gather in a physical space normally, and it's also not an event when, but we also gather and we study the scriptures together, but we are a people. We are a community of those seeking to follow Jesus. And we're specifically seeking to follow Jesus right now as we're beginning to settle in and understand what the new normal is for this next season. Uh, as we've been separated from one another and from much of normal life in the midst of COVID-19, we have found ourselves uh, locked into our homes, really, but not feeling at home, where for some of the introverts here, there's nothing sounds better than being left alone in your house for a week, and all social engagements are off. And yet here we are coming into week three now, too, where all the days are running together, uh, where we're beginning to kind of feel off, that something's missing, maybe the emotional tension are starting to run high and we're beginning to want to go back to how things were. When we go grocery shopping, what used to be a normal thing of going and having, you know, a whole aisle full of different cereal options and a hundred different types of eggs that I could pick between, now we find limited supply. We have to wait in line before we can go into the space even to begin to shop. There's missing ingredients now that you know, a couple of weeks ago when we were making dinner and, and something was missing, we forgot to get something, you know, I hop in the car and drive down to the store. Five minutes later, I'm back and I've got what we need. That experience is gone now. And in the midst of this uh, ongoing movement with COVID-19, politicians and governments are working their best and really arguing over right now, which way is best to not deliver the world from this, but how do we slow the, inevit the inevitable spread of this pandemic? How do we slow the sickness and even death? And so this sickness and the danger, the political bringing this in and, and the like all of this has brought on us this kind of new hyper-awareness to the spaces that we're in between infected and disinfected, clean and unclean. We now have this new ritual that started seemingly overnight where whenever we go into a new place, we wash our hands. And anytime we come home after going someplace, we wash our hands. We have this weird new social distancing thing where there's new little social interactions that are happening of talking to my neighbor from across the street or going for a walk and, you know, someone's coming towards me on the sidewalk and which one of us is going to be the person that, you know, gives the gap and gives up the sidewalk, whereas normally you just kind of walk past each other. 
It's all become these new things that we're getting used to. Not being able to go to social events, to restaurants or religious gatherings like a church services because of these infections where we have people going into self-quarantine because they've come in contact with someone infected or they themselves are infected or really the safer at home is all of us self-quarantining because of the possibility that we may be infected or may receive it and pass it. We're trying to slow the spread. In the midst of all of the fear, the strangeness and the confusion of this moment. One of the strange things that my mind goes to is how over the past few weeks, we're beginning to understand a few biblical ideas or concepts in new experiential ways. What do I mean by this? Well, uh, last fall, we talked about the uh, idea of exile, of being in a place that's home but doesn't feel like home, of looking back and waiting for the good old days to come back in their fullness so that we can move on with our lives in the direction that it's supposed to go. This idea of exile is what many of us are experiencing right now. Throughout the Bible, we see people praying for their daily bread and even taking time and gratitude to thank God for the food in front of them. Normally, we just kind of jump into our food because it wasn't God that gave us food. It was Ralph's or Vaughn's or Trader Joe's. And now we understand that, man, this is not a given for us to have the food that we have here. There's a sense of gratitude and prayer for that. There's also a deep need for external hope. I feel like as a pastor, so often a lot of my job is pointing people to the reality that you cannot save yourself and our world is not gonna save save itself. And so a few months ago, everyone's focus was on how politics and government is gonna save the world. And so the whole argument was, who's gonna be the next president? Who is going to be the representative of the Democratic Party? And how is, how is, the, how is Trump going to respond to meet that challenge or, or, or whatever? And right now, we're beginning to see that even the best politicians uh, and doing their best, it's really, it's not deliverance. It's just slowing down the inevitable. We get the need for an external hope. Humanity, there are some things that are too big or in the case of COVID-19, too small for us to be able to do anything about them other than stall as best as we can. And so all of this comes together. And then fourth, us understanding in a new way, the purity laws of Leviticus, the hand washings, the time being spent away from others after coming into contact with something like a dead body or having a skin disease or bodily fluids that used to be weird for us. And, you know, kosher laws and the foods that they ate and the things that they did that now we're like, oh, I kind of understand at least how that was for them. That maybe for us, it's not um, bodily fluids are touching certain things, but we have a sense now of clean, unclean of that distinction in a new way. And it's specifically this understanding of purity laws that sets us up to understand the stories of Jesus in a new light. As we look at today, one example of a take heart moment that uh, largely connects to purity laws, to self-quarantine, to hand-washing and, and being clean versus unclean. We understand this story in a way that we may not have a few weeks ago. And so today we're going to be looking at one story of one of these take-heart moments as we started last week and we're doing in the midst of this season, looking at how Jesus at certain moments in the Bible at certain moments will command the people of God to take heart. And so we've been slowing down and looking at each of those take heart statements and what those mean for us in this moment. And so today's teaching is week two on that. We're going to be looking at one story from two different angles. We're going to be jumping kind of back and forth between the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark as they tell the same story, but from little different emphasis, like the emphasis is a little bit different at times that actually helps us 
you know, put the story together in a different way. If you really want to geek out this week, Luke does it too in chapter eight of his gospel, but we're just going to do Matthew and Mark today. So we're going to jump into that. Um, all of the scriptures that I'm referencing are in the notes tab um, because we're going back and forth from Matthew and Mark. I just put them all in there so that you guys don't have to um, uh, go back and forth and get like Bible app whiplash or even, you know, physical Bible if that's what you got. Um, but we're going to pray and then we're going to get off to the races. Sound good? Okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> Sound good. I don't know who I'm talking to. Uh, myself. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you just for time to stop, to rest, uh, to study once again your scriptures and to find how you're speaking to us, even in the midst of uncertain and scary times. We ask that you would speak to each and every one of us today. Help us to see ourselves in the story and to see what you're calling us to in these times. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, and then we'll jump to Mark 5, uh, verses 25 and 26, as we begin. And so, Matthew introduces our story as he's been following the life of Jesus and said, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Mark 5, 25, adds a little bit of extra understanding here. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So in this story, we have an introduction to a new character in the ministry and life of Jesus. And it is this woman who suffered from a discharge of blood, bleeding for 12 years, or this symptom of abnormal uterine bleeding that could have been a cancerous or non-cancerous growth, uh, could be a hormonal imbalance that is leading to that. And if this is part of her life, then her experience as a Jewish woman would have been, well, I'll just say, uh, our self-quarantine for the past two weeks scratches up against the reality of this. That in this moment, you and I, like we just talked about, are hyper aware of clean and unclean. And this is what the Jewish people were also hyper aware of. You can read the book of Leviticus to see how this all plays out, where for the Jewish people, it was not simply infected or disinfected, but this distinction between the things that are holy or special or sacred and common, normal things. And so this would mean uh, things like a dead body, when you come in contact with a dead body, that... There is something sp different and special of coming in contact with a dead animal or a dead person than a normal person. Um, when someone has a skin disease, that this is a symbol, it's almost like they're carrying death physically on them. And so they were asked uh, to separate themselves, to wash in a particular way, to wait a specific time before they entered back into normal life. As it pertains to this woman, Leviticus 15 lays out specific uh, ritual purity laws for the uh, contact with bodily fluids, specifically reproductive bodily fluids. For both men and women, if you were to come in contact with bodily reproductive bodily fluids, there was a specific way that you were to give yourself 24-hour period before kind of going specifically into the temple, the tabernacle, and washing yourself. Specifically for women, when, as Genesis puts it, the way of the women is upon them, that this time of... Um, of bleeding was specifically for women to go outside of the camp, outside of their home. And it's not like in the desert, like they're just like, you know, 
enjoy enjoy this week. There was a specific place that women went, and the whole idea was that when this is happening, there's something sacred and special that is different than when a woman gets a paper cut. Um, and so what women were given was a time to rest, um, a time to get away from uh, husbands, from work, from life, from children, and, and specifically to acknowledge that there's something special that's happening in this moment. And so reproductive bodily fluids were something that for them were sacred. There's something different from when I spit on the ground and if my wife spits on the ground, like, you know, a kid doesn't pop up, right? Or someone sneezes on, I mean, right now, that <laughs> just give me goosebumps thinking about someone sneezing on me. But there's something different about those specific, there's something sacred, something holy, uh, something that is not common about those. And so there were these rituals of doing this. Now, this was not because... Um, having sex was sinful or that, you know, they saw menstruation as contagious, you know, like Brick Tamlin in uh, Anchorman, Steve Carell's character, where the bears can smell the menstruation. It was nothing like this that was strange. The, the whole idea was that there is something sacred to this. There is something special to this. It was actually based out of a high view of um, huma humanity's sexuality, of reproduction, that sex is a sacred thing, that this is not a common thing, and that it's actually also a separate thing from temple worship. Whereas for most of the Israelites' neighbors that, you know, the temple is where, you know, that's where giant orgies happened in the name of the gods. And Israel is going, there's a distinction between reproduction between sexuality and then us as a community gathering to worship and be in the presence of God. And like I said, also this, these women having a week-long retreat when the way of the women was upon them, that this was a high view of women, that women are um, in society that regularly works women down with very little rest on top of weekly Sabbath and you know year of Jubilee and all these other things. Women had this seven-day rest once a month or so. Um, and then depending, you know, rhythms of childbearing and, and breastfeeding would look differently, but that women were given this period of rest and acknowledging that there's something sacred about that, which, I mean, come on, this is really, really cool stuff. I mean, at least for me when we read this. Now, all this comes together. This wasn't wrong or sinful, but a sacred view of these things. And, and it saw specifically that what goes on out there in, in, in the world and the temple in particular is a sacred and special and holy place. And so those who have come in contact with death or the loss of life stuff is what we could call the loss of reproductive or the, the coming into contact with reproductive bodily fluids is that that's not something just to willy nilly carry into the life place, which is the temple where God's presence dwells, where people are given life from God. And so all this comes together in a way that we kind of understand. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the grocery store in the produce aisle, you know, trying to pick over like the remnants of what was there. And from behind me over near the kombucha, <laughs> there's a guy looking from kombucha and he's coughing, dry cough. <laughs> and I did not get kombucha. It was on my list. I was like, I want a kombucha today. Not on my list anymore. Why was that such a, like a faux pas and like, was like so shocking for me. And, and even I got angry with him because he was bringing potentially infection, disease, into what what has been set aside as a safe place where people actually literally get life from their food. It's it's 
there's a distinction between places. It's it's not wrong for him to be sick. What's sick is for him to go willy-nilly without a mask on into the place where life is. There needs to be things in place. And and so for us, we're focused on infection. For them, it was not only infection and disinfection, but holiness and sacred, what is clean and unclean. So they saw this. It's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is the guy who goes bar hopping um, after knowing that he's infected and then spreading it further. That is what is wrong. So all this comes together is the experience for this woman then with 12 years of ongoing bleeding is... Well, what's going on? Leviticus uh, 15, uh, 25 says that when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, uh, other than her monthly period, (laughs) happy Sunday, uh, when she has this ongoing, uh, it continues beyond, she will be unclean as long as she has that discharge, just as in the days of her period. So all all this to say, all this is what in the world is going on? This woman has had 12 years of self-quarantine. This woman has had 12 years of people giving social distance because this is with her um, an issue with her reproductive system. The odds are that she's not married because of such a high view of reproduction in that time of, of childbearing. And if she's not married, when that largely means is that she's um, hopefully her family is caring for her, but she's socially kind of in the bottom rungs of the ladder. Doesn't have children. Family is hard. People become coming close to her or near her. Uh, her having community and friendship because people, I mean, you got to wash and wait 24 hours before you can get back to your normal life. I mean, her life is one that our two weeks of self-quarantine is just beginning to scratch the surface of. And she's had 12 years of this. As Matthew and Mark say, that she is suffering because of it. It is torment and painful, not just physically what's going on, but because of the social and spiritual and relational implications of, of this sickness. Mark even mentions that her hard work through over a decade of medical care, this is not a demonization of physicians and doctors. It's Mark simply detailing she has tried everything and the doctors haven't been able to meet the need. And so where, did, where does she go in her desperation? Mark chapter five, let's keep going in verse 27 and 28. She had heard the reports about Jesus. What about Jesus? Kingdom of God healing, right? This is what she's hearing stories of. And so she comes up behind him in the crowd and she touches his garment, as Matthew puts it specifically, the fringe of his garment. For she thought to herself, if I touch even, or if I touch only his garment, I will be made well. So she reaches out at the end of all medical options. In this desperation, she hears reports of Jesus and his teaching and his healing, who he is. And so she moves through the crowd, the woman that's supposed to give space because of her uncleanness, because of what she's carrying. She moves through the crowd specifically to touch the fringe of his garment. Now, what garment is she reaching out to touching? And so that's where it's time for our first century fashion minute. You didn't think this was going to happen. Look at this. We're getting into menstruation and men's fashion from the first century. Happy Sunday. It all comes together. Uh, Numbers 15, 38 through 41. What was Jesus wearing? What's this garment? Look at me in Numbers uh, 38, uh, 15, 38, where uh, God tells Moses, speak to the people of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners. That is the uh, Hebrew word, the kanaf of their garments. So they have it on the fringe 
of their garments, the kanaf. They have these garments, and on the four edges, they're to put a tassel of blue um, in each corner, in each kanaf, each fringe, and it shall be a tassel for you to look on. Everybody sees it, and they remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, to follow after not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, but to obey God. You remember to do all of God's commandments, to be holy. This is everything. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be with your God. And then again in, in Deuteronomy 22, you shall make for yourself tassels, what he just talked about, on the four kanaf, the four fringes, the corners of the garment which you cover yourself. So Jewish men like Jesus would wear this garment called a a, um, a prayer shawl or modern day can be referred to as a tallit, that it would be placed on them. And it's comparable to a modern day yarmulke. It is an external identity sign where you see someone walk across the street. Oh, that guy's, that guy's Jewish. He's a, he's practicing Jewish. That's who he is. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what this, this prayer shawl was for them. It was an external sign of their holiness of that. They belong to the Lord God. And, and here's the picture is you have this unclean woman moving way through her crowds and she's reaching out to touch the very symbol of Jesus's holiness. She's at risk of defiling Jesus. All of those Leviticus commands are coming in contact with a clean person. This is the person with COVID-19 who, despite being told to self-quarantine, is you know showing up at a church gathering or something like that, um, and specifically because she wants to touch the fringe of his garment. Why the fringe of his garment? And why, why the garment altogether? That's what Jesus is wearing. Why is she wanting to touch the kanaf of his garment? Where is she getting this? Is this some kind of weird magic? Jesus is healing people, and so maybe he's got healing powers in his garments and his clothes? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the answer to the question actually shows up in the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, chronologically before Jesus, the last prophet, about 400 years before his birth. Malachi is waiting and anticipating the arrival of the kingdom of God and specifically in his Messiah. In Malachi 4, verse 2, he says this, But for you who fear, that is revere, respect my name, this is God talking, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So Malachi describes this kingdom of God that's coming, the last prophet before Jesus. He's waiting for the kingdom of God and he describes it like, a S-U-N, sun, rising up in the morning. And instead of light that's radiating, it is righteousness or rightness with the world. It is the Hebrew idea of shalom. Wholeness, flourishing, completeness is what is shining. And like the sun rising over the course of time, this sun will rise and dawn. And as it does, it will overcome not just darkness, but in its healing will overcome death and sin and chaos and disease. And it's so powerful that even the the wings, the rays, the the what you, the extremities of the sun are going to have healing in them. Even more than that, some manuscripts of Malachi replace, or, or they use instead of the word sun, the word servant, and they replace saying its wings with his wings. And so this metaphorical sun that's rising is a person, it's a servant. Now, here's the interesting thing. This person will dawn like a sun with healing in his wings. But the word for wings can be translated, and it is wings, but it's the same word wings that's used for um, the fringes of a man's prayer shawl. <laughs> from, it's the same word from what we just looked at in Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
he will rise with healing in his kanaf, in the, in the fringes of his parashal, the, the kanaf, in, in his wings. So what in the world is going on here? Well, after 12 years, this woman trying everything that she could to find healing, to you know, escape the self-quarantine or whatever, all that she'd been going through, she begins to search the scriptures, I believe, for specifically Bible verses about healing. And probably, whether it was a rabbi that visited or whatever that had happened, pointed to Malachi 4 of, in the midst of her sickness, she praying, seeking out things, but also praying and waiting for the, the one who will come with healing in his wings, the healing that she needs. And she hears the stories of Jesus, and she's putting two and two together. And so she's moving through, and she's going, man, all I need is just a touch of the son of righteousness, of the Messiah, of the Lord's anointed king who has healing in him. And so her desperate reach for the, the, the kanaf of Jesus, the wings of Jesus, his prayer shawl, is not superstitious magic. It is embodied faith that Jesus is the Messiah of Malachi, that he is the dawning, the son of God's kingdom with healing. She wasn't the only one to make this connection. In Mark chapter 6, um, just a few um, verses later, uh, 6.56, whenever Jesus came into a town, villages, cities, or countryside, they would lay the sick in the marketplaces and implored that they might even touch the fringe of his garments, the kanaf, and as many as touched it were made well. All of these people hearing promises and stories from the last prophet before Jesus that the son of righteousness is going to rise and he's going to have healing in his wings, healing in his wings, healing in his wings, healing in his kanaf, in his prayer shawl, his servant of God, that they see Jesus as the one that does this. And so they're reaching out and they're saying, look, all we want is just a touch of the kanaf. And so what happens? What does she receive? Mark 5, 29, all the way through 33. She touches and immediately, it says, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my garments? Who touched me? And that his disciples with Jesus say, uh, Jesus, you we're in a giant crowd right now. Everyone's pressing up against you and you're asking who touched you? Who hasn't touched you, Jesus. But Jesus looked around to see who had done it. Someone touched him in a different way than the rest of the crowd in this way of faith and healing. And so the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she falls down before Jesus and tells him the whole truth. Now, what happens here? Throughout the book of Leviticus, the whole concern is the unclean, the defiled, the infected, if we want to use that language, touching the, the clean and making it unclean, touching someone healthy and now infecting them, touching someone and, and the unclean getting onto the clean and making it to clean. What happens when she touches Jesus is the reversal in the story is that it is not the clean that's defiled, but it's the unclean that's made clean. Jesus is walking around and even in his prayer shawl, he has this contagious holiness this contagious rightness, that as the things that are broken come near, they find wholeness and they begin to come back together again. So she experiences this in her body. But she is terrified. It's the reason why in what we read a minute ago, she's the one, she came up from in the midst of the crowd behind him. She didn't come directly to him. Why? Because she's unclean. And so now she's falling on the ground and she's so, she's so afraid because she has just touched this holy one of God and she's terrified. He healed me, but 
what if I defiled him? And the good news is that Jesus wanted a relationship. He's looking for her. See, what the idea is, you know, Jesus is walking around, you know, we got a, you know, robot Jesus or whatever, who's just, you know, a sponge people can come up and soak a little bit of healing off of. Jesus, why does Jesus care about, you know, he, okay, power went out for me. Cool. She's healed, right? Like another one done, right? And I didn't even have to talk to that one. That's great. Like, no, Jesus turns around and he's looking for the person who's reaching out in faith because he doesn't. He wants a relationship with her. He is not content with us, with you and me simply just touching Jesus' wing from the crowd and then just getting the little bit of healing physically that we need. He wants to bring us under his wings. The reality is, is God is not a vending machine for your desires, for your needs, for what you're going through. He's a person to be known. He wants to love you and be loved by you. He wants this relationship with you and I, not simply a vending machine where we can sneak a quarter in and beep, 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 you know, and get the Cheetos or whatever. He, he wants relationship, which shows up even more powerfully when we see her response. We're going to read Matthew and then Mark's. Matthew 9, 20 through 22. Or just 22. Uh, Jesus turned and seeing her, says to her, take heart. There it is. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Mark says, he says to her daughter, who's the daughter? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So let's just show the connections. Let's show the ones where they agree. And then we'll come back to that take heart, go in peace difference. Daughter, it's not woman. Right? Or doesn't just turn and say, hey, you're healed, go in peace. Or take heart. It's daughter. It is language of endearment, of tenderness, of love, and even family relationship that's going on here. He says, daughter, this loving endearment term, your faith, your reaching out to me as the son of righteousness, as the Messiah, as the anointed king with healing in my wings, that faith of reaching out has made you well. And this word made you well. In the Greek that Matthew and Mark are reading in is, is this word sozo. It's the same word for salvation or deliverance. For Jesus and for the writers of the New Testament, in using this word, it, salvation in order to be salvation, healing, in order to be healing, it has to be holistic. It cannot be just physically being saved, but not spiritually coming into a renewed relationship with God. That's why Jesus is getting with her. And for us, as we're praying for physical healing, it is not just that Jesus wants to bring physical, but also spiritual. He doesn't want to just have you feel spiritually connected to God, but not bring healing physically to you. It's holistic, which is so good because we are people right now and live in a moment in a world that is in deep, deep need of holistic healing, deliverance, and salvation. This story and this woman's reaching out, all of this comes together to remind you and me that holistic healing and our hope can only be found in the sun of righteousness, in its dawning kanaf, its rays, its wings, Jesus Christ. There is much, as we see, that doctors can do. But the reality is, even in all of the work that they are doing, and some of you are, are working in the medical field, I do not take this as me saying, you guys are not doing an incredible job and we are grateful for you. But even you acknowledge that that as hospitals are becoming more and more people coming in, our limits of what we can do is maxing out. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to care and go into nihilism. It means that we're going to continue to work. But we need to have our ultimate hope set beyond what doctors and politicians and governments can do. We have to set our eyes on that. 
We need to see that in Jesus, holistic salvation and healing, it has dawned in his arrival. It is currently rising over the horizon and beginning to touch spiritually and physically as it goes. And one day we're awaiting for its high noon for Jesus's return and the renewal of all things. Now, the implications, though, of this daughter's faith making her well is different for Matthew and Mark. They phrase the implication of healing faith differently. How do we see this? Well, Matthew uses the word that we've been tracing over the past few weeks and will continue to. It is this Greek word, one word in the Greek, tharseo, two in our English translation, take heart. It means firmness of purpose, specifically in the face of danger or trial. How many of you feel like this moment is danger or a trial or a test in which you could have firmness of purpose? Jesus is the one who offers that to you. Other ways you can translate take heart is being of good comfort, being courageous, boldness, confidence, fear not, even cheer up. One of my favorite uses comes from Hercules uses Tharseo when he's daring someone to do something. Like, I dare you, Tharseo. can be translated as do not move, be deaf to threats, or have a heart like iron. It is boldness. It is courage. But there's a difference in how Mark puts it. Mark doesn't use Tharseo. What does he say? Go in peace. You see that together there is a not boldness that is this rah, 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 but a boldness and courage that comes out of a deep peace. The Greek word is erene. It connects to the Hebrew idea and word of shalom. To take heart is to go in peace to go in shalom. My deep prayer is that each and every one of us might be like the woman in this story, that we might, in the midst of our suffering and self-quarantine and everything going on, that we might be saved and made whole through coming to Jesus, not just to touch his kanaf, but to come under it, to find this holistic healing. And that as each of us do this together, we might become a community of contagious shalom or peace in a moment where the world is breaking apart or seems to be. And that we would have this contagious shalom, not out of a delusional pie in the sky hope of I think things are gonna get better, but that as we take heart in the ongoing dawning of the kingdom of healing, the kingdom of shalom that happened at Jesus's resurrection 2,000 years ago, that is currently happening in his present reign as he is working all things for the good of those who love him, even in the midst of darkness and death, and will one day happen fully at his return. That we are members of this kingdom of peace, of shalom, and so we can take heart that even as this world is breaking down, we have seen that in the resurrected body of Jesus, the prototype and reminder that Jesus is going to restore all things.